If you will, stand now for the reading of our scripture for today. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 through 22. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers, having been subjected to him. Thank you. You may be seated. A couple things up front. So if, you've, if you're a visitor with us, we are tickled to death that you're here. And um, if you think that what we've done at this point is weird, just wait till we get done with this message. You're going to really think we've lost our minds. Um, Alan's got bubbles. Well, today I've got demon spawn, so get ready. Here we come. I'm not playing. Um, yeah. I'm actually incredibly excited about this message. So, We'll start in 1 Peter 3.18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Now, again, so that everybody knows, we um, work our way through books of the Bible. Um, this was not a randomly chosen passage. This is not, hey, let's see how this goes over. Um, we work through books of the Bible, and we've been going through First Peter for the last few months, and we are in chapter 3, and our passage today is 18 to 22. So, um, just so you know, this is in a context. And so this first ver- the first word of our verse is for. So why would that word start our passage? Well, we've got to go back and remember where we've been in this book and in the immediate context of what this for is for, as you should always do when you're reading and studying Scripture. Uh, context is key. So Peter is calling on the recipients of this letter that he's writing, these scattered aliens in Pontus and Galatia, and he, he mentioned at the beginning several different places in Asia Minor. He's calling on them to live against the grain of the culture, calling on them to look and act differently than those around them who don't know the great salvation that has been made available through the gift of God and the work of Jesus. And if you have never before uh, really explored that first part of First Peter Uh, and what God did in salvation, you need to do that. It's just so incredibly beautiful and wonderful. So he's calling on them to act differently in front of people who don't know the saving work of God. And that counter-cultural living calls on citizens to be subject to governments, servants to be subject to good and bad masters, wives to be subject to husbands, whether those husbands are believers or not, and husbands to live with their wives in an understanding manner and showing them honor. Then he went on to instruct all of you in the church, instead of individual roles, he calls on all of you as church members, church people, as believers, to love the brothers, 
and to not return evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but rather to bless those who curse you. That's countercultural, right? Knowing that God's eyes are on his people for their good and that God's face is against those who do evil. And he summed that thought up in our last passage, which was two weeks ago, by saying that it's better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than to suffer for doing evil. And that brings us to verse 18. So it's better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil for. So there is a goodness to suffering for doing good. And it can and is God's will to do so. For. For what? For Christ also suffered. Peter has already invoked Jesus and his sufferings back in chapter 2, but here he really expands on this thought and shows, that, shows what specifically Jesus' sufferings led to. He says that Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. So now let's look at this suffering. It says he suffered once for sins. Now what does that mean? Well, it pretty clearly refers to Jesus' death on the cross which occurred in order to pay the penalty for the sins of his people. I mentioned earlier, Peter mentioned this, in 2.24, he says, He himself, Christ himself, bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. That was earlier in the book. So he suffered, Jesus suffered for our sins. And Peter says it was once that he did it. The crucifixion was a real life, in time event. Jesus was God in the flesh, a real man who died a real death on a real cross at 3 p.m. on a Friday. It happened once. Jesus doesn't have to keep getting sacrificed over and over and over again, which is part of the problem we have with Roman Catholic theology. The Mass is a re-sacrifice and a re-sacrifice. No, he did it once. And that's good news. Romans 6.10 says this, For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. Hebrews 7.27 says, He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. So once for all, all of who? All of his people. Once for sins, for the sins of his people, our sins, not his sins. He had no sin. So it was the righteous for the unrighteous, Peter had said. Perfect God-man for imperfect sinful men, 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. Wow. So this is the very heart of the gospel, isn't it? Sinless God suffers and dies in the place of sinful men in order to pay their sin debt and make a way for them to know and worship Him. Which is what Peter says next, that He might bring us to God. Now don't miss this. The Greek word for He might bring is prosago. Four times it's mentioned in the New Testament. It means to bring or draw near. It means to lead to open a way of access, to render one acceptable to God. In a forensic sense, to summon, 
to a trial or to a punishment, to draw near approach. And you could think of it as the land which a sailor is approaching seeming to approach him. It's drawing near. John MacArthur explains this this statement that he might bring us to God thusly. Listen, this is three or four sentences. Quote, It's a purpose clause, and the verb to bring us is a technical word often used to denote introducing someone or providing access for someone or bringing someone into a relationship. That's what the word indicates. I'm continuing to read his quote. It's a marvelous word, prosago, funny word, but that's the word. If if used in the substantive form or the noun form, it means an introducer. Or a giver of access, someone who brings you into the presence of someone else. And in a king's court, there would be a prosagnus. That person would be the one who was approached if you wanted to see the king. And if you convinced him you had just cause, he would introduce you to the king. So, MacArthur goes on to say, Jesus is the official introducer. He's the official giver of access. In in fact, he said, no man comes to the Father but by me. John 14. He said, I am the way. It was Jesus Christ who came, he said, to show us the Father, to lead us to the presence of God. He's the only way. He's the only source of introduction. End of quote. Lovely, isn't it? Jesus as our introducer, that he might bring us to God. And then Peter's verse, back where we were at in 1 Peter, ends with this clause. Being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Now watch this. Of course, being put to death in the flesh, that's pretty easy, right? We don't really have to struggle to figure that out. Jesus was in the flesh. A real live human, like we said before, when He died. And He did die. We know that from the Scripture. Luke 23, 46, Then Jesus, on the cross, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. He died. And then James says this about death. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. So when there is a separation of the spirit from the body, the body is dead. There's no life left in the body. So when Jesus breathed his last and committed his spirit to his father, his body died. His body was without a spirit. It was dead. His body was. But Peter says that Jesus was made alive in the spirit. Now what does that mean? So depending on what version of the Bible you're using, you may have a capital S there. You may have a little s. There were no capitalizations in the Greek. So we've got to figure it out. If it's capital S, that means he was made alive in the Holy Spirit. If it's little s, it just means his spirit, which his spirit is the Holy Spirit. And we're going, I don't know. But but what's he referring to here? So now watch, this is important. At the point of Jesus' death, when his spirit left his body, what happened to his spirit? Was it dead? You can't kill a spirit. The immaterial part of him was fully alive. So when his flesh was put to death, his spirit remained alive, which is true of all of us when we die. When you die, when you breathe your last, your heart starts pumping, stops pumping, and your brain activity ends, and your spirit leaves your body, guess what? Your spirit's still alive and always will be. Though your body's dead, and then at the resurrection, our bodies are going to come up out of the grave and rejoin with our spirits, and we're going to... It's, it's, yeah. 
So the point here is that when, when Jesus committed his spirit to his father, breathed his last, his spirit left his body, well, where did his spirit go? What did his spirit do? Watch this. Verse 19. In which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Oh boy. Verse 20. Because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Huh. Now this is what we call a hornet's nest. And we're about to shake it up. We're about to rattle some bees' knees. Okay? There's some wild stuff here. So Jesus' spirit leaves his body as he dies on the cross. Where does he go now that he's made alive in the spirit and he's only a spirit? Well, Peter, who had literally talked to Jesus after Jesus died and came back to life, reports that Jesus went in the spirit and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. And then Peter expounds on who those spirits were. But let's start with this word proclaim first. Okay? Some people read this passage and assume that Jesus went somewhere and preached the gospel to some spirits that were being held captive. But the word for proclaimed here is not the evangelized word. That would be eugalion. This is just caruso which can be preach, announce, proclaim, or herald. It was common in Roman times and pre-Roman times for a victorious army or king to send a herald ahead of them to announce or proclaim their victory to all the lands around them. That herald would caruso, proclaim the victory. And that is the mindset here. And I love this thought. Listen. At the moment of what appeared to be his most crushing defeat in the eyes of men, Jesus went to hell and proclaimed his victory to spirits in prison. Now who are those spirits? What's that prison? And now it gets really interesting. Let me read those two verses again. In which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they, the spirits, formerly did not obey. When God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. What? There's a lot going on here. So these spirits are in prison. And Jesus goes to proclaim his victory after his death to them. To a place. To a location. Not a mindset. It's not a, these are some ethereal thing. There, there's actually a location where these spirits were being held and Jesus goes there. In the spirit. And then Peter says that these imprisoned spirits formerly did not obey. So, who are these spirits, do you think? Well, God created spirits and he created all kinds of earthly bodily creatures. Okay? In the earthly bodily creatures, we got birds, fish, animals, insects, men, a lot of different things, right? So, what were the spirits that he created? This this isn't real hard. It's angels, right? Okay? And some of the angels we know from Scripture followed Lucifer when he was thrown down from heaven. And what do we call them? We call them demons. Okay? Here we go. Okay, so let's assume that the spirits being mentioned here are demons. I think that's a good place to start. We're going to start from that assumption. 
And we'll get back to that in, in a little bit to tell you why I think that. But not all demons are in prison, right? I mean, we know from Job that even Satan gets to roam about the earth, right? So he's not in prison. He will be in prison, but he's not in prison yet. But these demons that Peter references are in prison. Why is that? Because, Peter says, they formerly did not obey. Well, duh, Pete. I mean, demons are obedient, right? No, they're not. They're disobedient. That's why they're demons and not angels. They're all rebellious to God's plan, but these particular demons... (laughs) We're disobedient in a particular way at a particular time, it would seem. Now we're really about to lose our mind. Okay, you ready? That's me, (laughs) y'all. That's God saying, do you hear what you're saying? (laughs) Yeah, I do. I do. You said it first, by the way, God. So they did not obey at a particular time in a particular way. When God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. Okay, so this is centered around when Noah was building the ark. So what was going on when Noah was building the ark? All right. Genesis 6, 1 to 5. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them. Okay, following that. The sons of God, put a big question mark right there, saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. Seems problematic. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim, put a question mark there, were on the earth in those days. And also afterward, when the sons of God came in to the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. Put a big question mark right there. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And I don't have verse 6 up here. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. Okay, so whoa, 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 whoa. don't miss this. So the sons of God and the daughters of men. So that's a thing in this passage, right? There are a vast number of opinions and volumes and volumes written about this very thing. Okay, trying to figure out what it means. But let's do this, okay? And, and this is... I've wrestled with this for years, literally, literally years. And actually, when, when I said we were going into First Peter, Amanda texted me this passage and says, you get to preach this. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, thanks a lot. Um, but no, it's, it's, it's exciting. Um, vast amount of opinions about what this means. But let's say daughters of men is pretty easy to figure out, right? So men had daughters, Man, humans, had daughters. Okay? What about this sons of God thing? Who are they? You're like, I wish you'd tell me. I believe sons of God implies that God created these beings. Sons of God means they had their origin in God. They weren't like the daughters of men These daughters of men who were procreated by human means. These sons of God were created by God Himself, which would include angels and demons. 
Okay? Well, if these sons of God were demons or even not fallen angels who, oddly enough, were attracted to human women and they found a way to take them as their wives, that's contrary to God's natural order of spirits and humans being separate and distinct. So there's a problem. These sons of God who were saying are either angels or fallen angels, angels or demons, look at natural human beings and say, I want that. And then it says somehow, and I, I, don't, I don't have this answer. I don't, know, I don't know how this happened. Was there a possession type of thing? Was there a materialization? Type? I don't know. But it says that they took them as their wives and that they, these women had children. Literally, then, that would make them demonic spawn. John MacArthur said, a bunch of Rosemary's babies. And then he refers to them, and it was evidence that there was something different about these. He calls them the Nephilim. They had supernatural frames, it would appear. They were known for their mighty acts of valor. But they were not according to God's design. So God sees evil begin to multiply all over the earth, running rampant to the point that the demons are mating with humans. And some of you are going, "Uh uh-uh, that ain't what this means. Stay with me, okay? I'm not just jumping on some sort of crazy mushroom or something here, okay? God says, enough... And begins a plan to wipe man off the face of the earth via a worldwide flood. Is it possible that that's what Peter is referring to, saying that God imprisoned these disobedient spirits in the time of Noah? Now we'll get back to that in a minute. Now Peter, back in his letter, then turns his attention to this. When God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. So we know from the scripture that a man named Noah, and I love what Luke was saying today, found favor in the eyes of the Lord during all this plan and all this working of God, and God instructed Noah to build an ark. We know from other passages that the ark took 120 years to build. That's a big boat and that's a long time. While it was being built, the scripture says, Noah was calling on those seeing him prepare for God's judgment to do the same. Noah's building an ark and Noah's preaching messages saying repent and escape the coming judgment. And people are like, there ain't no coming judgment, we're good, look at us. Even the demons think we're cool. Peter said that God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. God could have just wiped man out and started out with any demon spawn in the creation. Instead, he had Noah preach righteousness for 120 years while he was building the ark, calling all men to repent. They did not, and so Peter says what we see in Genesis, the eight souls, eight persons were brought safely through the water. That was Noah, Noah's wife, their three sons, and their wives. Three plus three plus two equals eight. And that's all that survived. That's all that escaped God's wrath. Now what about these demons? Well, there are two New Testament passages that include some information about them that I think verifies what we said before. Second Peter, verse, chapter 2, verses 4 to 10. Watch Peter again, now in his second letter. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, see the 
the connection again. A herald of righteousness with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then, if all that's true, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. And to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. And especially those who indulge, now watch, in the lust of defiling passion. And despise authority. Now look at Jude. Oh, bold and willful they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Now Jude, verses 5 to 7. Not Peter, but Jude now. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt... Afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority. But left their proper dwelling. He has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah. There's that connection again. And the surrounding cities which likewise indulged in sexual immorality. And pursued unnatural desire. Serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. So. Both of these passages, 2 Peter and Jude, refer to angels being punished and kept in chains in hell. And both passages also reference sexual sin by angels and humans in Noah's time, in Lot's time, in Sodom and Gomorrah. In Noah's time, it seems that it was angels going after human flesh. And if you'll remember the story of Lot, when the angel showed up at Sodom and Gomorrah, the men of the city came and said, Bring out these folks who came in because we want to know them, which means exactly what you think it means. So this was human flesh going after angelic flesh. So in Noah's time, angels going after humans. In Lot's time, humans going after angels. And God said, no. And then what does he do? In both cases, he destroys. He judges. He destroys Sodom and Gomorrah in Lot's day, and he imprisons disobedient spirits to immediate and eternal hell in Noah's day, and he wipes out everybody else except Noah and his family. Now, you may be sitting here going, now that's just plumb crazy. Let me ask you something. How quickly do you think your brain would melt if you knew everything that was going on in the spiritual realm today? Everything that's gone on in the spiritual realm since creation. Your little tiny pea brain, three and a half pounds, about this big, if it knew everything weird that God was doing, would melt. You, you couldn't handle it. So yeah, this is weird, but I assure you there are far weirder things than this going on, and God's doing it. And we don't understand it, and we can't apprehend it. You think you know everything about everything? You don't. So this is not outside. We believe that God spoke and things <laughs> happened. Amen. We believe we're going to live forever. We can't fathom that. But we're saying here it seems that somehow angelic beings took women as their wives and they had children. And God said no. And he wiped out the human race except for Noah and his family. And he sent those disobedient fallen angels into immediate and eternal punishment for what they did. And don't think the rest of the demons don't know about this. When Jesus was on the earth, he's walking around, demon, whoa, whoa, the demons pop up, whoa, whoa, are you here before the time to punish us? We know who you are. You could send us into the abyss right now. Is that what you're here for? You shouldn't do that. It's not time yet. They knew. 
So Peter's point back in his letter is that Jesus did in fact descend into hell directly following his physical death, not to free prisoners, but to announce to those imprisoned there from Noah's time his victory that resulted from his suffering and death. It was the start of his victory tour, which is going to last for all eternity, by the way. Showing that the only, that only, he was showing that only humans, the only way that humans would be born spiritually would be by his sacrificial death for them. So that he might introduce those saved humans to God. The spiritual birth would be by blood, the blood of Christ himself, not a result of spirits lusting after human flesh. But my question is, why? Why would Jesus care to do that? Now listen, this is going to be, we're going to reference this passage at least once more, maybe twice more. Paul says in Ephesians 3, Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of His power. To me, though I'm the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Now watch. And to bring to light for everyone... What is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that, big important clause here, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. Now listen, listen. The plan from all eternity was God was going to show His wisdom to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places through the church, through the redeemed people, those saved by Jesus' death and sacrifice. Look at my wisdom through these people. And who's He showing? Rulers and authorities in heavenly places. Well, once Jesus died, He began showing that wisdom in the very pit of hell itself to those rulers and authorities who had been shut up all those years after grievously disobeying and rebelling against God. And it's amazing. And we'll look more at it in application, but we're not done with the wild stuff yet in this passage. Let's look at verse 21, where we start to look at the ever-pot-stirring topic of baptism in the midst of all this. Verse 21, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. What are you saying, G? I haven't been recording. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So, <laughs> so we've been from Jesus' suffering leading to His Spirit, leaving His body, that Spirit going and giving an in-your-face to some imprisoned demons in hell. Naturally, the next place we would go is baptism, right? What? Right? What? What? But that's exactly where Peter goes next, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Mind you, this is not just Peter using popcorn brain. The Spirit directed him to go here. Well, let's be fair. He finished that last verse by saying that Noah and his seven family members were brought safely through water. Then he mentions baptism. Oh, okay, water. Baptism, right? But what though? Those immersed in Noah's day, those baptized in the water, were not the ones that were saved, right? Those immersed in the water were in trouble. 
They were under the judgment of God. It wasn't the baptized in water ones that were delivered, right? Noah and his family were safe and dry. So that's, I think, a good way for us to look at this and understand that Peter's not talking about the waters of baptism. He says baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Now I think that's a knot that needs a little untangling. Let's start here. Would Peter or any other biblical writer say that we're saved by being immersed in water and coming back up out of that water? Would any biblical writer say that? No. We are saved, as Peter said at the beginning of his letter, as our banners say back here, by God's grace, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, as shown in the Scriptures alone, to the glory of God alone. We don't have a banner that says baptism alone, right? So why would Peter say that baptism, which corresponds to Noah and his family being saved from the waters of God's wrath, now saves you? He says it because it's true. (laughs) Not water for baptism, not water baptism, but being immersed in Christ, who is our ark of salvation. That's what saves us, and that is God's doing. The ark doesn't represent water baptism. It represents us being hidden in Christ, immersed in Him, and thus being saved. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, which is what water does, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. How? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul says this in a whole lot more in Romans 6. I'm just going to read four verses. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ, again, dry baptism here, immersed in Christ, Jesus were baptized into his death. We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Now that's packed and we don't have time to unpack all that. But, do you see what it said? All of us who have been baptized, immersed, which is what baptism means, which is why we don't sprinkle people, we immerse them in water, Because that's literally what baptized means. It means immersed. All of us who have been baptized, immersed into Christ Jesus, were baptized into His death and buried with Him so that we might be raised with Him into newness of life. Now let's look at that again in light of what Peter just said in verse 21. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So yeah, this is one of those baptism passages that doesn't have a drop of water in it. Immersion into Christ now saves you. He is our ark of salvation and in Him we are delivered from God's wrath against our sins and given a good conscience through His death, burial, and resurrection. And then Peter finishes with a flourish in the last verse of our passage today, which is verse 22. Who, Jesus has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. So he's just referred to Jesus' death and resurrection in verse 21. And here in verse 22, Peter says that Jesus, our deliverer, our introducer, who died for us, raised us with him, and, and we were raised with him, this same Jesus has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God. 
Now, I'm afraid that's a little bit cliche to us. Jesus is at the right hand of God, but goodness gracious, church, it is glorious. Jesus died. His body was dead. And while his body was dead those three days, his spirit at least, I'm sure he did more than this, but he at least went and proclaimed his victory to spirits in prison. And then afterwards, at some point, he was resurrected, which means his spirit returned to his beaten, broken, bloody body. And he raised that body from the grave in a glorious form. And then after showing himself alive in that real body that wasn't marred beyond recognition, but was gloriously healed, after that, after showing himself alive in that new body, a real man in real flesh, that flesh enlivened by his very spirit, after that, Jesus went into heaven at his ascension. And Hebrews 1, 3-4 says this, He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name He has inherited is more excellent than theirs. After making purification for sins which is what he did when he shed his blood on the cross and died, and after showing imprisoned spirits that he was much superior to them, and God's way of salvation was through him, not them, he went into heaven now, not hell, done been to hell, now he's in heaven, and he sat down, which means his work was done. It's finished, he said on the cross. He sat down at the right hand, the place of honor and power, the right hand of the majesty on high, which is his Father. And in doing so, Peter says, it was clear that this ascended, seated Christ was ruling and reigning with angels, demons, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him, put under his feet. Amen. No angel in heaven. No demon in hell. No human on earth. No authority or power can deny the lordship of Jesus Christ. And don't forget, all of this came after his suffering and death. Which is Peter's main point in all of this. The glory, the reward, the joy comes after suffering. After Jesus subjected himself to God's plan and God's power. And the cruel hands of human beings who couldn't stand him and had to kill him because they couldn't coexist with him. The world looks on and says, well, that's over. He's dead. He's defeated. The rulers of this world mock and say that his life was wasted. But at the very point of his death, he begins his victory tour. Proclaiming his victory, and ours by the way, his authority, his completed work, done for the glory of his name and the good of his people. So, Peter says, as you suffer, don't lose sight of Jesus' example. Suffer well and look forward to the reward that comes after the suffering, just like your Lord did. Wow. So now we turn our attention to application from this amazing passage. We'll be looking at three S's Suffering, sin, and salvation. It's pretty simple. Suffering, sin, and salvation. And, and so, so that you know, the frame that we'll be looking at these three S's through 
What holds them up is actually a fourth S. It's sovereignty. God is sovereign over suffering. God is sovereign over sin. And God is sovereign over salvation. So let's look at our first point. God is sovereign over suffering. This is some of the best news for us in the here and now that's in the Scriptures. I'm afraid that we look at suffering as the displeasure of God. Or maybe we start to think that the evil's stronger than the good. Or maybe the plan isn't going the way it's supposed to go because why would God have me suffer this way? How many therapy rooms have I set and had people ask me that very question? If God is sovereign, why am I suffering so much? And the answer is, you're suffering because God is sovereign. That's not very comforting initially, but it's true. God is sovereign over suffering. Have you seen those memes? It's like the guy that's all colored black and he's going like this. He says, why do you give me your hardest trials? And like Jesus says, you just need to go to bed earlier. Yeah. I literally just asked you to go to work today. And that's, that's really all I did. That's so hard. We all suffer in many ways. We do. And there are varying degrees and amounts of suffering. But here's what I'm proclaiming to you through this passage today. Just like Jesus' suffering was under the sovereign hand of God, directed by the very sovereign hand of God, so is yours. And that suffering precedes a reward. You are not suffering in vain. You are not suffering for no purpose. You are suffering to show the glory of God in the midst of your suffering and you are storing up treasures for yourself in heaven through that suffering. And I know sometimes I want to throw my hands up and say this suffering isn't worth it. But this passage is telling us, no, it is worth it. Just like Jesus' suffering, which were far beyond anything you and I will ever go through, by the way, physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually, produced for him by the plan of God a reward that is, he's above every name. Every authority, every ruler. And he subjected himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. I can rest on and in God in my suffering, not having to worry or wonder if he knows or cares or is in control of it, just like Jesus did. Victory in God's kingdom very often looks like defeat in the eyes of the world. Jesus' death looked like the end, but it was the beginning of his victory tour, which I've already said twice. It was the peak of his ministry, of his service, was his death. That gruesome, horrific, terrible death that he died was the very plan of God, carried out by the hands of sinful men, and God was sovereign over every nanosecond of it. Matter of fact, it had been foreordained in eternity past. We'll get to that in a minute. We mentioned earlier in 1 Peter 2, For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. 
when you suffer for doing good. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Peter will say later in 1 Peter 4, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. God is sovereign over your suffering and He's directing it to the praise of His glory and for your ultimate good. Our four score and a couple or three score and a couple or whatever is not even a blip on the radar compared to what God's going to do in and through and for us in eternity. So as we suffer now, and it feels like it's forever, it's not. And God is sovereignly directing it for our good. And the blessing and the spirit and glory of God rests upon you in the midst of it. God is sovereign over your suffering. So God's sovereign over suffering. Secondly, God is sovereign over sin. Now watch this. Ooh. Yeah. What does it mean that God is sovereign over sin? Does God commit sin? No. Can God commit sin? No. He is impeccable. Jesus could not have sinned. He was impeccable. But we see all through the scripture that God draws a line and says this far and no farther. Sin, devil, demons, humans. We saw that in the book of Job, right? You can do this, but you can't go past that. You can do whatever you want to his stuff, but don't touch him. Have you considered my servant Job? Yeah, you won't let me touch him. Okay, you can touch him, but you can't kill him. That was like, all right. But Martin Luther said, even the devil is God's devil. The roaring lion is on the leash that God holds. God, in His plan, is showing His greatness over the rulers and authorities, even in present time, by showing that sin will not go past a certain point. Noah's time shows us that. It won't go past a certain point. You're going to get in demon spawn, this is going to be canceled. And it was always God's plan. We'll get to that at the last point. God is sovereign over sin. So when we watch the news, when we listen to all the bad stuff going on, listen... God is not asleep. God is not dead. God is sovereign over every sin that is being committed by evil people and evil spirits. Now watch this. God is even sovereign over the sins that I commit, superintending them to the ultimate praise of His glory. Ha! Wait, 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 wait a minute. So you're saying sin's okay? No, no. Sin is an affront to a holy God, but God is using my sins. Scripture says, where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more. So listen, bring your sins to Him. He knows about them anyway. He's sovereign over them anyway. So now my sin becomes an opportunity to worship Him. I sin, I choose it, I indulge in it. And I go, the Spirit convicts me and I go, that was sin, I'm sorry. Thank you for the forgiveness that is mine through the finished work of Christ. 
And he's over, he's sovereign over my sin to the point that it leads me to worship him when I sin. Woo! Ephesians 3 again. To me, Paul says, though I'm the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to His eternal purpose that He has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is in the midst of sin. This is in the midst of the choice that Eve made while Adam sat and twiddled his thumbs in the garden. God's eternal purpose was standing and he said, yes, sin is going to happen and I'm going to be sovereign over it to the point of eternity past. That's always been his point. And again, I keep jumping ahead. That's the next point. But also this. He, Jesus, disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to shame by triumphing over them. How did he do that? Through the blood of his cross. He looked at sin and said, I've got an answer for that. I've got a solution to that. I've got something that is greater than even that. He is sovereign over sin and he has triumphed over sin and he has given us victory over sin so that we might walk in newness of life over the effects and the power of sin in our lives. And that's good news. God is not asleep in the midst of all this sin. He has triumphed over it and is giving us a way of escape. 1 Corinthians says, He's faithful and will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but along with the temptation will provide a way of escape over every sin that you're tempted to sin. And when you do sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, who says, I know it, I paid the penalty for it on the cross. Sin is not sovereign. God is sovereign over sin. Finally, God is sovereign over suffering, God is sovereign over sin, and God is sovereign over salvation. The plan has always been the plan. From eternity past, the plan was to provide salvation from sin for the people of God. That's always been the plan. Jesus did not show up one day and say, Oh, whoa! Whoa, now I'm on earth. Now I'm in a human body. What's going on? No, it was foreordained in eternity past that the lamb would be slain. And that lamb would be God in the flesh, offering himself as a sacrifice for our sins. Colossians 1, 24 to 27. Now I rejoice in my sufferings, Paul says, for your sake. And in my flesh I'm filling up what's lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. Listen, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is, oh wow, Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's salvation. Salvation is Christ in you and you immersed in Christ. I love the end of Romans. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God 
to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. It was hidden for ages, but it was there. And the plan was in place. And all the sins of all the men, all the sins of all the demons, all the sins of all the world could not hinder it because God had a plan to save His people and He revealed that plan in the work of Christ. Immersed in Christ. Union with Christ. The Lamb slain before the foundation of the world. God became flesh. Lived a perfect life. Took our sins upon Himself. Bore the wrath of God for those sins. He died. He became alive in the Spirit with His body dead for three days. Resurrected the unseen alive over a 40 day period ascended into heaven seated at the right hand of God reigning and ruling until he returns to earth to reign and rule with his people it's always been the plan and it will not be thwarted or hindered because God is sovereign over suffering, sin and salvation from eternity past into eternity future, the plan has always been and will always be to the praise of His glorious grace and for the good of His people. Jesus is the great introducer who brings us to God where we are accepted in Him. We are immersed in the introducer and forever we will sing the praises of this great salvation that He has wrought for us. And proclaim to all the rulers and authorities in heavenly places and to the very pits of hell, Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Let's pray. Father, who is sufficient for these things? It ain't me. It ain't us. But you are joining us together as a spiritual house for you to dwell in. And as we suffer and struggle, we are reminded that you have taken care of our sins. You've taken them out of the way through the sacrifice of Christ. And you have provided a way of salvation for us through the great introducer that we might be immersed in him so that no suffering of ours is in vain, no sin of ours is without payment or redemption. And this great salvation that you have wrought for us is to be proclaimed throughout eternity redounding to the praise of your glory. We believe, God, that you have been sovereign over it since eternity past and will be sovereign over it through eternity future. And that includes this little sliver of time that you created in between. Help us to rejoice in our sufferings and praise our Savior and give you glory in it all. Even now, we ask in the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, normally, I would read a benediction here. But we get to celebrate today. Don, Bob, would you guys want to come up? We've got a family that, that grew exponentially over the holidays. Got babies, too. And babies, yeah. yeah. Todd and family, however y'all want to do this. You all want to come or some of you want to come? or. three babies. I can hold Well, you ain't lying. We are very, very, very glad and happy uh, to welcome Todd and his family to our congregation, Todd Childers, uh, transplant from Huntington. Uh, Him and his family and, and his lovely wife have these three beautiful children, and they want to be in fellowship with us, so they are going to sign their covenant day of membership, and we... 
remind them and us to um, uphold the covenant that he's about to sign, to be in fellowship with each other, to bless and encourage one another, to correct each other as needed, and to share life together in the fellowship of the Holy Spirit that we might encourage each other, edify one another until we see Jesus face to face. So, Todd, if you want to sign the paper of little baby. He's in, look at him, it's like one-handed master. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, that ain't saying a whole lot, brother. <laughs> you guys want to pray for this lovely family? All right, now let me read this beautiful benediction that is found in number six. The Lord bless and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. You're dismissed, but stay neat with us if you can. Hug and love on these people as much as they want you to. And we'll do it again.